The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. This is week five or six. In my head, I'm always a week ahead, I think, of where it's at. But uh, suffice it to say, we are in the book of Revelation. We started on Mother's Day. We continue on Father's Day, and so on and so forth. And we are in chapter two. And as you're turning there, I want to invite you to verse eight this morning. And we will be looking at the church at Smyrna, the suffering church. And I will say this probably a few times, but this is one of two churches in the seven that are being written to here by uh, John writing down what Jesus, the risen Jesus, is saying. These are one of the two churches that have nothing negative said against them. Wouldn't that be quite a checkup when you go to Dr. Jesus and he says, you have a clean bill of health, keep it up. But last week, we saw the church at Ephesus, and Ephesus was really struggling. They had all their doctrine right. They were a busy as a beehive, but their heart of hearts was not loving God as they should. They knew all the right things, but their heart was far from trusting God, obeying God, and really just uh, loving him as he ought to be loved. So each of these churches, I want to remind you, they are real they're in modern-day Turkey. Uh, they are all over what was then the known world. And we'll put up a map later on, but it's, it's, a, it's a, a mailman's route, like a circle. And Jesus is writing to them to remind them about what is coming. If you're new to this series, we're going to say it a lot, but our, our title is God Wins. It's not about solving, solving a puzzle book or solving uh, pin the tail on the Antichrist. It is about rather exalting Christ and making him known. That's what it's about because these Christians were suffering. Did you get that feel from all of our songs and all of our Bible readings today? They were suffering. And so with that in mind, I want you to join me if you're able to uh, stand with us in honor of God's word as we read it together. To the church at Smyrna, say that fast. Try and write it down. I have misspelled this. Praise God for spell check and common grace because I have misspelled this thing 50,000 times this week, but we got it right in the bulletin. And that's what matters most for your eyes, right, as we go forward. This is the church at Smyrna, and we'll introduce it here in just a moment, but these are four to five verses of encouragement today. And I will confess, I said this to Brian and Nelson at our pastor's meeting, we do it every Wednesday. I said, you know, it's kind of hard this week because there's nothing controversial about this church. It's just a good, faithful church. And so you may say, man, there's nothing like hardcore here. What they're hardcore about is Jesus Christ, and that's what keeps their motivation going. And so I want to encourage you with that today, is you will hear a lot of things you know, but I pray you take them and deposit them in your spiritual bank account, because these are things that if something ever happens to us, like happened at Smyrna, we will need them in that time. Let's read it, as, and then we'll pray together. It says, and to the angel of the church of Smyrna, write, and this is what Jesus is going to say to them, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I, Jesus, know your tribulation and your poverty. And you might have parentheses there, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't fear, verse 10, what you're about to suffer. For behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, and you will be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. But be faithful unto death. And I, again, that's Jesus speaking, will give you the crown of life. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. For the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. May God bless the reading of his word. And I want to let you know, we often, if you've been at our church, we often go verse by verse. We're actually going to go category by category today, a little bit different as we categorize this, because we want to see what it is, how to remain faithful in a world of suffering. There will be three points, not because we're about his church, because there often are three things right in the text. But let's go before the Lord as we pray this morning. It's good to see you today. Father, as we look at this church from Smyrna, a place that is the, the modern-day Izmir in Turkey. We thank you that the faithfulness of an impoverished, suffering, bow-beaten church that was down to the last was a church that stands and is an example for us all today. Yes, Lord, they were not perfect. Yes, they had their sin. Yes, they probably didn't even follow you as perfectly as they could have when they should have. But in their heart of hearts, they suffered for the sake of the gospel because they knew that's what was truth. Father, would you endeavor us to do the same? May whatever we're facing in this world, on this earth, for the sake of Christ, be counted as loss uh, in this world for the gain that Brother Brian spoke about earlier. We praise you. We thank you. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. May be seated. Thank you so much. You know, many of you have seen this person before, but this is Joni Erickson Tata. Many of you know that name, and in fact, many of you, uh, even before you came to Christ, I've heard some of you say you had heard her name before. She was a very uh, athletic young lady. In fact, she was going to go to scholarship at uh, a university to dive and swim, but in her late teenage years, she dove into a lake the summer before her, uh, what would have been her freshman year, and she was paralyzed. And now she has a worldwide ministry for those who are physically challenged. Many, how many, I'm just curious, how many of y'all have heard of her name or read a book by hers? It's a lot of people. She's been around for uh, at least 50 years, probably a little bit more. But if you ask Joni, and she's been asked many times by secular media and by, by Christian media, would you change your experience that you had by being paralyzed and diving and all those things? Would you change it? And her answer is no. She hasn't walked for a long time, but she said millions of people who are hurting and physically are, are, are hurting as well have been encouraged by my suffering to get hope in times when they have suffered. Because of the suffering I've had, my testimony is, is I would never have known that God could be so real to me had I not experienced the pain that I have had. Whew. Now that sounds great, but I'll be honest, I would not be the first one to sign up for that. And I think many of us are there. But we praise God for examples like hers because suffering is no fun. And are you, if you're suffering right now, you know that it's no fun. You don't like it. But her ministry shows that wherever she goes, people have a question. Why would you want to go through this? And her answer is because it keeps me closer to Jesus Christ. That's exactly what the church of Smyrna was facing. Your suffering might be physical, emotional, relational, or spiritual, or perhaps a combination thereof. But perhaps you can't see any good that can come out of it. This is that great verse from Psalm 119.71 you'll see on the screen. It reminds us that it was good for me to be afflicted, the psalmist said about God, so I might learn your decrees. Now, God is not a cosmic killjoy. He's not a cosmic uh, a drill sergeant that puts you through the ringer so he can see you sweat. But there are times and places where God's people and God's church will be called on to suffer, to make God's name known in places and to people it may never have before. And Joni Tata, Erickson Tata would tell you, and the Bible speaks even louder, is that God is bigger than your pain. 
God is bigger than your suffering, and your suffering is not in vain. If you're not a Christian here today, I don't presume that everyone in this room may be. If you're not a Christian, God may be using suffering in your life, physical, emotional, relational, spiritual, whatever, to grow you to know that only he is sufficient for you, and you need to come to Jesus. But if you're a Christian here today, you may need to know that if you are not suffering, that God is still working on you. But if you are suffering, that Christ's message to you is that he loves you and he wants you to know that your life is going to be suffering in this world. It is not going to be a bed of roses every day. and You know that. If you have not suffered as a Christian, I would say, well, you better check your Christian card at the door because every Christian suffers. Every Christian is going to suffer. And the best question to ask in suffering is not why, but what is the good that God will bring about through this because of this moment of suffering in my life and in those lives of the people around me? I mean, if Jesus could remove in the next moment every suffering you have but left you in your sin, would that be enough for you? I know this church well, and that would not be enough. And that's what the big idea is today, is that the true Christian has a greater fear of sin than of suffering. The Christian has a greater fear of sin than of suffering. And you say, how do we know that? Because the church at Smyrna was willing to put their physical lives on the line, no matter what it cost them, than ever deny their Lord. They knew that was a greater sin, if you will. They wanted to know the suffering of Christ because they knew they could not deny the one who saved them and washed them from all their sins. And so often I'm guilty of this as the rest. I'd rather get out of whatever trial I'm in than deal with whatever sin's in front of me because I feel more comfortable when I'm not suffering than even when I'm in my sin. And yes, the pastor just said that because you do that too, don't you? But here it is. Jesus tells us the true Christian has greater fear of sin than of suffering. So three ways today we can remain faithful to God in this world of suffering. And we're going to remember, and I'll just go through these. We'll break them down in a minute. We'll remember the risen Jesus' concern. We'll remember the risen Jesus' charge. And finally, we'll remember the risen Jesus' compassion. But before we get there, you're going to get a history lesson. Some of y'all remember the History Channel when it actually gave history and it wasn't like reality shows all the time? This is your History Channel moment. I hope this helps you out. Who was this church at Smyrna? Well, the letter to Smyrna was the briefest of the seven. It is now known today as Izmir, Turkey. And you see this map up here. We'll get to the next picture in a minute. We are on number two of that map. Little black dot there is Patmos, the island John is on. He wrote to Ephesus last week. Number one, you can kind of see him going through that route. It's like a postal route. It's like a big circle. And Smyrna was called the Pride of Asia. It wasn't as big as Ephesus, but it was big. It was kind of like, if you want to compare, uh, I was trying to think how to do this. It's kind of like saying uh, Independence and Lee Summit are big, but they're not as big as Kansas City. Does that make sense? It was 35 miles north of of uh, Ephesus, almost the distance here, uh, and Leo, I was thinking of you on this, the distance from here to Cameron, roughly, 35 miles that way. And that puts it in context. And it was reported to be the home of Homer, not the Simpsons Homer, the great poet Homer of the Iliad and the Odyssey. And Smyrna had the largest theater in Asia. And if you want to put up this photo, this is probably what it looked like. They're pretty sure. It had one of the most public, magnificent uh, architectures in its theaters. They had many, many theaters to give plays and dramas to the Greek god and goddesses. And they were a refined city. They were the highfalutin things. They weren't, they weren't down-home, Ozarkian, Missouri folk that just go and do what they do. They, you know, they, were, they were refined people, right? 
They were from New York and Boston, I'm sure, or something like that. But Smyrna had strong ties to the Roman Empire. That's why they were so highfalutin. Legally, the emperor of Rome had a, had a palace there, and he was to be worshipped there. And so as all these cities were, they would before they could go in the marketplace, they'd take some incense, and they would throw it in the fire, and they would say, Caesar is Lord. And if you're a Christian, you can't say Caesar's Lord. Because you have one Lord, don't you? And his name is Jesus Christ. And so the persecution came against these Christians. In fact, the persecution came, you saw there in verse 9, from one of their very own groups of people they came out of, the Jews. The Jews who are said here to be a synagogue of Satan were the ones that were persecuting them. And the Romans had given the Jews an exemption to worship the one true God. But once the Jews started dismissing out all the Christians, the Christians were out on an island by themselves, and they were getting persecuted to the nth degree. People were losing homes. They were losing jobs. There were no trade unions in those days, and even if there were, they would kick all the Christians out. These people were suffering. Why? Because they believed that to suffer was greater than anything that could happen if they were to hold on to their sin. They could not deny Jesus. And so what I want you to see is what they saw. They remembered what Jesus did for them, and that's what I want you to see first off. They remembered the risen Jesus' concern. That's number one. How did Jesus remember them? There are four specific ways here, but he, he reminds them, first off, he remembers them in their poverty. And again, we're not going verse by verse. I'll say the phrases and the verse numbers, but this is in verse 9. He says, I know your tribulation, or I know your works and your poverty, and I know your poverty. Smyrna was one of the wealthiest cities in the world, but the Christians there were dirt poor. They were poor because they had lost their jobs. Their business contacts were no more. Everyone that they used to trust were now turning their backs on them because they did not worship the emperor as these other people did. Yet Smyrna is rich because she remained true to her confession. She was willing to pay the economic price to be impoverished, to be loyal to King Jesus, to be, uh, uh, to be loyal to the crucified king and the risen Lord. But I want to remind you today, Christian, that being poor in the world's goods is laying up for you treasure in heaven someday. Look, American Christians, we live in an age of affluence that one month's wage for us could be the yearly wage for most people around this world. We may not suffer as the Samaritan believers did, but we too face temptations and persecutions. And you notice what kind of persecution they explicitly said there in verse 9? Your Bible may have something different there, but do you see that word slander? In verse 9, it could be the word blasphemy. We'll get there a little bit later on. But the point is, is they were not just suffering physical loss, but their names were being drugged through the mud on account of Jesus. Andy, if you want to put up the next little ditty there. It's a reminder to us that whether it's verbal, whether it's physical, whether it's economic in a job, that following Jesus Christ can be both risky and costly. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12 that all that will live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. This is why our friends who prescribe to the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel do not have a gospel at all. Because if Jesus himself suffered and died as one of the world's poorest people, so too all those who follow him may not always have what the world has. Now let me be clear, because someone may be thinking this. This is not to say if you own a fifth wheel or an RV or you have a vacation home or you have some money in savings or, or you have an extra dollar to go buy a hot dog at Buck Night at the Royal Stadium that you can't live for Jesus. 
The point is, is that when the time comes, are you counting the cost of what it is to follow Christ? Are you holding on and sin to those things of the world instead of the, the one who owns the world himself, Jesus Christ? He knew them in their poverty. Secondly, he knew them and, and they remembered, and he remembered them by concern in suffering blasphemy. In suffering blasphemy. You say, how are they suffering? Isn't Jesus being blasphemed here? And Pastor Nelson's answer would be, yes, it's a both. He says there in verse 9, I know the blasphemy of those which are Jews or the slander, and they are not. Blasphemy or evil speaking here or slander here means what Matthew 5.11 says, Jesus' words. Quote, men shall revile you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name. These were people who had untamed tongues, and they were boldly saying, these Christians are false. They don't worship the emperor. They have a dead God. These people are, are atheists. Atheists? Why did they get that charge? They were called atheists because they did not believe that there was any God other than the God they worship, which we say is the true God. But the Romans called them atheists because they did not worship Caesar. They believed the one God. And so these blasphemies were coming from Satan himself, masquerading in tongue lashings by the Jews. Now, many of you know, and I want to be very clear here, that God has chosen the Jewish people as his people. And we need to recognize that. There's a whole theology, a thousand different ways that you can take that, but suffice it to say, God has not given up on the Jewish people. But let me be very clear. Jews and Gentiles need one solution. Do you know what it is? Jesus Christ. Do not think just because a person is a Jew that they are somehow brought into the kingdom just by being God's people. Because do you know what happened over the years? They went this way, that way, and every which way. Everyone needs Jesus Christ. But they were speaking blasphemy against them. Satan was using these, these unsaved, religiously Jewish people to bring about suffering by God's people. Andy, if you want to put up that next little thing, that would be great. And it is a great faith reminder to you that when things go wrong and you don't know why, remember that Jesus smiles and delights in you because of what he did for you on the cross. When these people came against them with all sorts of evil speaking, and the bowels of hell literally here being named, Satan himself, the accuser, slanderer, and father of lies, came, they needed to remember what God told them. And they held their tongues. They did not revile, First Peter 2 is, Jesus did not revile against others in return. But in meekness, they responded with Christ's likeness. They did not panic. This church did not. They have treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust corrupt or where thieves break in or steal. Whereas Ephesus was less than what she appeared, Smyrna was much more than what she appeared. And it was probably a very small church, about a fourth the size of our church. And when people came against them and used Jesus as a cuss word, or a derogatory word, and talked badly about people, that they wouldn't shop at their businesses, hire them on, that they were, they were literally having to band together, they considered that a greater joy than holding on to the world. And Jesus praised them for that. The more she was tried, the more she was blessed. Smyrna was a church that Christ delighted in and smiled upon. Friend, I want to remind you that whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and whom he scourgeth, every son he receiveth. Had to get a little King James quote in there for you, Hebrews 12, 6. He disciplines those he loves. And if you're here today and experiencing great suffering, you should praise God that he loves you enough sometimes to take you to task, or in modern vernacular, to take you behind the woodshed 
and count you worthy to suffer for his sake. Oh, what a lesson Smyrna teaches us today. But they remembered Jesus in their po- Jesus remembered them in their poverty and their suffering blasphemy. But what about number three? In their suffering imprisonment, Jesus was concerned about their suffering imprisonment. Look at verse 10, the first part of verse 10. He says, do not fear what you're about to suffer, for behold, the devil, second time that's mentioned, is about to throw some of you into prison. You say, Darren, uh, that's great, but we're not, we're not in prison. No, we're not. But the point here is to still be taken. By telling the Smyrnian Christians not to fear this trial, Christ is saying he'll be with them even in prison. No matter what you're facing, he's with you. No matter what trial you're going through, he's there. Who was that fourth person in the fire when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Do you remember that? The king was there looking in the fire, and he was yelling out, oh, he was so sad that he threw him in the fire, and there was a fourth person like the Son of Man. Who was that fourth person? It was Christ himself. Amen, it was. Eternity itself will reveal how many prison cells church history were sanctified by the prayers, the praises, and the tears of faithful Christians who were poor in this world, but rich in God's world. It was said that the Sumerian believers are assured their master would go with them because Proverbs 17, 17 says, a brother was born for adversity. Look, and Andy, if you'll please put this up. God is not the author of sin, nor does he tempt us to sin. That is a reminder you need to see that the source of this throwing them in jail was Satan himself and those people who rallied around him knowingly or unknowingly. Even so, the author, though the author of sin, tribulations, and suffering, Satan is not the boss in this matter. The devil's intent is to try to not just try us, but destroy us. But he is not in control. He does not have say over this world. God teaches him, like Luther said, he's on a leash, and he pulls him back whenever he wants to. But that is one of the main purposes God allows suffering in your life, maybe even to the point of imprisonment so that you can become more like him. That'll, make you friend, that'll win you friends and influence people, won't it? Not usually. But if you want to be godly, that's what happens. Christian, I don't know what will happen someday if you claim the name of Christ. Maybe there is coming a time when you will suffer enough to go to prison, to lose a job. We don't know. We are blessed to live in a country where we have the freedom currently to speak out and to give it our all for Jesus Christ. Yet, Sometimes, even pastorally, we remain very silent. May we not lose our freedom and not use it well. He also remembered them, Jesus' concern for them in their death. He says in verse 10, in the middle there, he says, be faithful unto death. He says, I see you in your poverty. I see you when they're slandering you, even when you're thrown in the prison. But I want you to know, if it's called upon, be faithful unto death. Do you know there are more Christians who have died for their faith in the last eh, 150 years around the world that we know of than have died in the last 1,800 years prior to that? Christians are suffering at a mighty, mighty, mighty rate. Yeah, we think of China and Iran and Turkey and North Korea. There are places all over the world where the name of Christ is named. People will die and give their name for it. But when Christ's face is lifted up, When Christ's face is lifted up, no suffering is too great. You'll see this on the screen. For his favor or loving kindness is better than life. He tells them, but fear not. When God's face is lifting up, suffering is, no suffering is too great. If we see him as he is, is there anything more comforting than that? He saw this church suffering. He saw this church really struggling on the struggle bus of life. 
But he said, I'm with you. I got this. I know what you're going through. And Christian, I don't know what suffering, you know, I used to say, and I'll be honest with you about this, I put this in my notes to chase a rabbit for a couple minutes, so get your hunting gear on, and let's go out there with uh, um, uh, Elmer Fudd and get, get the rabbit. But, you know, I used to say that unless you suffered physically for your, your faith, or, or man, if you lost something for your faith, then you weren't really being persecuted. But I don't think that's true. This church, really, they suffered, some of them, to death. But the greatest equivalence we have in America is that when people, when you post something about Jesus on Facebook and so, someone comes to you and, and reviles your faith for that, is that the same physical? It's just different schemes for different folks. Look, if you're suffering for the name of Christ, it can take on many, many things. But I want you to know that to step out, you will suffer. There is a bullseye on your back. And in America, it's probably more awkward, social, nonverbal, even verbal assault on you than it is physical. But if God called you to death, would you be willing? I remember in 1999, Lord help us, that's been 24 years ago. It's been a long time. 1999, I remember in March of 1999, being a freshman in high school there, I told you my age. And I remember in Columbine, Colorado, hearing the story about some of the young Christians who were in the library at the time when Dylan Klebel, Dylan and Eric, whatever the last names were, came and put a thing to their head and said, do you believe in God? And whether they answered no or yes, would they have done the deed, who knows? But it was encouraging to know that even young people at that time were willing to sacrifice themselves for the grace of Christ, even in a moment's notice. That's why this church was praised. And I want you to know, Jesus doesn't forget that. He knows your suffering. He knows it. He remembers. So how do you remain faithful in God's world of the suffering, this world of suffering? Remember Jesus' concern for you. Secondly is this. Not only should you remember Jesus' concern for you, but you should remember Jesus' charge. Jesus' charge. Would you notice there? He says, be faithful unto death. And I want to focus on that phrase for a second a little bit more. The Sumerian believers were to persevere until the end. Matthew 24, 12 reminds us, Jesus said, he who endures to the end will be saved. And for the gospel's sake, many of them faced death and imprisonment and many other losses. But there was a man, and Andy, if you want to put up his picture, many of you have heard of this man before. His name was Polycarp. No, he was not fishing for those, uh, those invasive species in Missouri rivers named Carp. His name was Polycarp. How many of you have ever heard of this guy before? So let me all go up. He's pretty famous. He was, according to ancient church fathers, he was the senior minister of the church of Smyrna. He was the one. Remember last week they had John and Paul and Apollos and Aquila and Priscilla and, and Timothy and all these great preachers at Ephesus. Well, the greatest preacher, if you will, we know at Smyrna was a man named Polycarp. He was born around 69 AD and he lived about 140 and guess who his mentor was? Many of you know this already. Guess who his mentor was? John the Apostle. And who is writing down the book of Revelation? John the Apostle. And so God is sending through John, writing this down probably to Polycarp in the 90s. He's about 25 at this age, and he's going to get this letter. And we know a lot about him, but Polycarp was in his 20s, but he died when he was 86 the story goes that he made no attempt to flee, but there was a bounty put on his head. And he was found about 20 miles north, 
ironically going up to the next city in the book of Revelation, about 20 miles north, very close to the city of Pergamum. And what happened is the captors got him and they were going to take him back to put him in that great theater we saw so he could be executed. And he asked the captors, give me two hours to pray. And they gave him two hours to pray. And they brought him before the leader of the proconsul. And Polycarp was told by the proconsul, the leader of the Romans, he said, Polycarp, I have respect for your old age, but not your God. He said, swear just one time that you will worship Caesar and I will immediately release you. And this is what he said on the screen. He said, 86 years I have served Christ and he has done me no wrong. How can I then blaspheme my king and the savior who saved me? And the leader went nuts and he said, the wild beasts are ready. If you refuse to worship Caesar, I will throw you to them. And Polycarp answered, bid them be brought them and let them eat me. <laughs> you just imagine this guy's 86 years old. And infuriated, the pro-counsel responded, as you hate the beast, I give you one last chance to worship Caesar, else I'll destroy you by fire. But Polycarp basically said, bring it on, baby. And he brought it on. Polycarp was brought to the stake, and he asked not to be fastened with cords. He said, I have one request. Leave me unfastened, for I die voluntarily for my master Jesus' sake. And the captors left him unfastened as they kindled the fire, and the wind drove the flames and just burned. And I'm not trying to be gross. We have small ears here. I want to be careful. But he was in a burning position for a long time. Till finally, over the flames, he cried out, the story goes, O Lord Almighty, the Father of my beloved Son, thy beloved Son, Jesus Christ, through whom he has received knowledge of thee, I thank thee that thou hast taught me worthy this day, this hour, to share the cup of thy Christ among the number of the witnesses. And a soldier was so angry, he took a spear like they did with Jesus, and he ran Polycarp through and killed him right there at the age of 86. Do you understand why Jesus didn't have anything bad really to say about this church at Smyrna? Because from the top of their leadership to the most poor of the poor, they were about Jesus Christ. Polycarp portrays the profound truth that it may cost you something to be a believer in Jesus. There are still true in many parts today where thousands of Christians are languishing in prisons or being killed for one reason or another. Not long ago, a Christian friend from Kenya that I know, posted on his Facebook, and he said this. He said, quote, Christianity is the easiest religion in the world as it is shown in America. You have money, you go to church a few times a week, and the rest of the week, many may compromise their beliefs in the spirit of the world. And I think that Kenyan believer is on to something. Andy, if you'll put up the next slide, please. May we be faithful in the times of slander. May we be faithful in the times of persecution. May we be faithful in the time when our faith falters and we can't understand our way. Because Jesus' charge was be faithful unto death. Look, some of you in this room today may not be able to do what you used to do or talk like you used to talk or may not have the money you used to have and may feel in, ineffective for the cause of Christ. But you can be faithful to what God has given you wherever you are. And Polycarp at 86 probably didn't have much strength left in him but he knew a God who had everything in himself. And that God was able to use his testimony. I mean, do you know what Paul means when he says, all that will live a godly life in Christ Jesus? Does your faith cause trouble with your peers or those with whom you work? Can you say, can they see, hear, and think, and speak and act differently that you are different from the world? Do you know what it means to be tried from within and without, sometimes by the world and sometimes even by professing Christians? 
Is your faith worth anything? Is my faith worth anything? Questions I asked myself this week. Look, Smyrna received grace to obey the counsel, which was be faithful. Jesus did not tell the church to be faithful in times of prosperity, when the building fund is high, when attendance is high, when the three Bs are there, when the budget's good, when the buildings are good, and when the butts are in the seats and the buffets are overflowing. That's four Bs. He didn't say that. He said, be faithful in times of persecution and when your faith falters. Look, some today will walk straight and narrow paths inspired by Scripture, and many of you are going to be conceived and perceived as puritanical, old-fashioned, rigid, and impractical. If it's for Jesus' sake, with a heart to obey him, then bring it on. I'd rather be on the side of Christ than be on the side of the world any day. And may that be our call at church. Jesus' call was that Christ would be first in our lives, even to the point of death, And Christ has every right to expect faithfulness from our church. When you see what he's done for her, when you see what he's done for us, how fitting it is for him to say, be faithful. Christ has the right to command it to us. And I want to remind you that that is the command of you. Be faithful, even when it hurts your bank account, even when it hurts your reputation, even when it hurts your relationships. If you're lovingly faithful to people and bold for the gospel, it's going to happen. It's going to come. Be faithful. Remember his charge. Why do you be faithful? Well, lastly, number three, and this is why, because you remember Jesus' compassion. He had concern. Concern is he's there, but the compassion is coming because he's going to tell you about who he is. His compassion comes from who he is. You could even say in this point, I threw around the C words with this, remember Jesus' character might be a better way to say this. Well, the point is, because of who Jesus is, all points one and two come to this head. Seven truths about Jesus I want you to see from this text about how you can remain faithful in remembering who Jesus was and what he came to do for you. Number one, Jesus Christ is eternal and unchanging. He's eternal and unchanging. It says in verse eight, he says at the very start, this is the words of the one who's first and last who died and came to life. He's got this. What great comfort it must have been. He's the first and the last. Dear Christian, what greater comfort do you need in the midst of your tribulation? Your master is first and he is last and he knows everything in between. Your tribulations will come to an end because Christ will outlast them all. You'll see that on the screen. Christ will outlast them all. He will. He did. He's purchased it for you. You may think there's no end to your tribulation, but Jesus said, I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. Try me out. You'll see it. Your Savior will abide with you forever because he is Jehovah, the eternal and ever-living one. I love that our God introduces his writing to this church about telling us about who he is. Not about what they're going through, and that's important, but more important about what he is, who he is, excuse me, and what he has done. So Jesus Christ is eternal and unchanging. Your trials will come to an end because Jesus will outlast them all. Second truth that he tells you about his compassion and character here is that he is victorious. He is victorious. You see that also in verse 8. He's not only the first and the last, but that last phrase there, he is dead and now alive. I had dialogue with a, a friend of mine who holds a very high religious position Uh, in the uh, local area. I won't say name or place for sake of privacy, but I will say this. This friend came back railing against our convention at the Southern Baptist Convention this week about how 
we mistreat all these people in the convention, all these things. And, and I asked a simple question. I said, well, you can't work with us on this issue, but can I ask you about this question? Do you believe that we believe that the only way to heaven is through a personal faith in the risen and victorious Jesus Christ? And her response to me was, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what you all did over here. I don't care about that. When other things get in the line of what Jesus has done as the greatest thing, we are off our rocker. Be careful. Do not let social issues, as important and biblical as they may be, take you away from what Jesus has done for you. If the resurrection happened, life is going to be okay. He's got this. And I want to remind you of that today, that when Joseph Arimathea rolled away that tomb, the dividing line between Christianity and all the world came to be. In light of that final victory, then nothing we risk, nothing we sacrifice for God is ever wasted. You'll see that on the screen as well. Nothing we risk and nothing we sacrifice for God is ever wasted. Andy, if you want to put that up, please. Be comforted. He knows, and he tells you he has defeated death. He has come back from the grave. Dewey family, I thought of you all as I was preparing this because it kind of the timing of things, that your mother knows that truth well now today, doesn't she? That she is, uh, she is uh, well, she's probably in charge of all the administrative things of heaven, telling people where to go and what to do. If you knew Betty, that's who she was, always with a smile. But I thought about her because we talked about the resurrection a lot at Busy Hands. When, if you know our Busy Hands group, every, every uh, well, Peg, we're kind of late sometimes. Every Tuesday at 11 o'clock, when Betty was here, she'd get up and say, put down your needles, put down your whatever you're doing, and we're going to pray. And we would pray in Jesus' name. And if you've never been around a ladies group that prayed in Jesus' name, you've never had your world rocked in a good way because that's the, what, the power that comes, all because Christ is victorious. Whatever you risk for him in this life will be rewarded in the next. Hold on to that. He also says, not only is he victorious, eternal, and unchanging, he's all-knowing. He's all-knowing. Look down at verse 9. He says, again, that, that phrase in verse 9, I know. I know. And Andy, if you just want to put up the whole, uh, whole slide for those taking notes, it would be great. I know. You know, sometimes when you're going through something, people walk up to you, and they, they put an arm around you, and what do they say to you? I know. And if you're really honest, you're, and they're honest, they probably don't know, but they're trying to be nice, and they're trying to identify with you. But where we may fail in that, Jesus really does know. He knows these things. He knows the poverty and the riches. And Jesus knows you and your situation better than you know yourself. That's something you can hang your hat on. What a great God we serve. What a sweet comfort it is to know that the Lord, with all our sins, fears, and tribulations, is willing to take us on. He's an all-knowing God. Guys, we're going to go a little bit faster through these. So if you're taking notes, just know they're up there. We'll be also be on the website. But for sake of time, I want to keep trucking through these. Jesus Christ is not only all-knowing. He knows your sorrows, your temptations, and your trials, and all the works that you do for him, the suffering you have. But he's also rewarding. He's also rewarding. We'll say, where do you get that from? Look at verse 9. He says, in your poverty, but you are rich. Jesus says, I know you're suffering for me. And Andy, if you just want to put up the little phrase up there every time, it'd be great. He knows you're suffering, but he compensates us for every loss that we sustain for his sake. That's kind of the same as number two, that he's victorious. But he says here that I know you're impoverished, but you're rich. 
He wants to tell you that no matter what the Powerball is, no matter what the million-dollar lotto ticket is that you win and you could have all the riches in this world, there's nothing compared to what you have in Jesus Christ. If you know Jesus, you have everything that you need. If you know Jesus, you know the one who allowed the Sumerian church to sink into poverty compensate you with his exceeding riches of grace. He balances our afflictions with tailor-made comforts. How many of you times have you been praying for something? And uh, I won't say the situation for the time, but some of this room, we were praying for something that was making them tired uh, about something this week in Wednesday prayer group, and we prayed about it. And on Thursday, that prayer had been answered just like that. How many times has God done that for you? He rewards those who are faithful to him. Not because they're seeking a reward, they're seeking him, but he rewards those who are faithful to him. Weeping may last for the night, Psalm 30, verse 5, but joy comes in the morning. He is a rewarding God. If he's also a sovereign God, be comforted in his character. He's a sovereign God. He says there in verse 9 and down in verse 10, he says, you must suffer for 10 days. All right, all, the, all y'all who got Revelation figured out, is that a literal 10 days? Or a symbolic 10 days? And Nelson would say, yes. Maybe yes, I don't know, all the above. We don't probably. We don't know. But they're suffering for 10 days. The, the 10 is symbolic here. And what he's saying is, and I want to remind you, the book of Revelation is literal in points, but it's mainly symbolic. Our Lord wants his people to understand that they may have to go through affliction, but they need not fear what will last for 10 days. And I want you to know the Lord knows how long you must suffer. Was this a literal 10 days? Maybe. Is it a picture of a bigger 10 days? I don't know. The point is, is that God sovereignly is over their suffering. He has the beginning and he puts an end period on it. And that's the in-between. He knows it. Our Lord wants his people to know there is coming a time when this is going to stop. It's going to hurt. It's going to stink. But it's going to stop. Proverbs 23, 18, for surely there's an end and there's an expectation that shall cut it off. In his faithfulness, God will not suffer us to be tempted beyond more than we can bear. I've said it again, I'll say it. You often see it on Facebook. God will never give you more than you can handle. Said no Christian who knows their Bible ever, right? Seriously, God will lay on you more burdens than you can handle, but it's not about you handling the burdens. It's about him being sovereign not only to lay the burdens, but to carry those burdens as well for you. That's why you cast all your cares on him, because he cares for you. The Lord knows how long you must suffer. Number six, Jesus is purposeful here. He is purposeful here. He says, I will give you tribulation. He says, do not fear, for in 10 days you will be tested. What is the purpose of every suffering you go through? Verse 10, you will be tested. A.W. Pink, the great writer of years gone by, said it this way, and it's up on the screen. He said, when you observe that the fire in your room is going down, you don't just put on more coals. You need the poker. That's that pokey thing with the, the fireplaces, right? To stir the fire. God often uses the black powder of adversity in order that the flame of devotion may bring more blessing. Let me say that again. God often uses the black poker of adversity, hard times, trials, tribulations, temptations, in order that the flame of devotion, your faith, may bring more blessing. Thank Christ for his purposefulness in suffering. God is not just throwing you some random thing saying, have fun while I walk, watch you in heaven and laugh. He's there making you more like Jesus Christ. 
This church has suffered a lot over the years, economically, attendance, organizationally, even perhaps at times the dryness of the word, as every church and every Christian goes through. But in every suffering, there is purpose. God is a purposeful God. Finally, we'll close on this. He's also a promise giver and a promise fulfiller. A promise giver and a promise fulfiller. In verse 11, or in verse 10 into verse 11, he says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. He says, I will give you a crown of life. That word crown there is the same word in Greek for Stephanos or Stephen in Acts 7. The Christians in Smyrna would have known about Stephen or Stephanos, the first martyr, and they would have known that Jesus is saying this crown was not just for Stephen. He was the first one to die for the faith post-Jesus that we know of. The crown is a reward, but it's of grace. The crown is a crowning work of God, but it's for every believer. The awarding of this final crown will be part of the eternal celebration. Someone asked me this last week from the church. They said, well, when Revelation's done and we stand before the Lord, what kind of rewards are we going to get? Guys, I'll be honest with you. There are some points of scripture that we could talk about a lot, but we really just don't know. We know we will be rewarded for our faithfulness in Jesus. I don't care if you get more gold bars than I do to fill the streets of gold. Because you know what? At the end of the day, we get Jesus Christ. And it avoids us from the second death. What is the second death? Second death is for those who have refused to bow to this sovereign, promise giver, fulfiller God, Jesus. And what he's telling the church at Smyrna, he says, is the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. What he is saying to them is basically, stay faithful. If you stay faithful to me, death will not overtake you. Not losing your salvation, but losing the rewards for which you had. If you're here today, though, there is a second death. CDC often says, and I'll say it again, 10 out of 10 people die. That's a true stat. It took a lot of research money to find that out, let me tell you. And Fauci's got nothing on that. But there is a second death coming, and that second death is a spiritual death. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, the Bible says you have sinned and you've fallen short of the glory of God. There's nothing you can do good to get to heaven except to come through the only one who saved you, and his name is Jesus. Look, the Lord is preparing you for many, many things. And that second death, Jesus said, is one that will be total separation from him. His presence will be there, but his wrath will abide forever. But Christian, I'll end with this. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear the one who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. If you're a Christian, your fear should be to the one who holds you together. He's a good God, isn't he? Let's go for the Lord and pray. I'm going to invite our worship team up if you guys want to come at this time. Invite our deacons up, our, our, our deacons in training. I want to be careful with that, that phrase. Our Richard and Andy are deacons in training. And I just want to take a moment to pray. After I pray, we'll sing a song and we'll partake the Lord's Supper. We know it's a longer service today. Thank you for your patience. But we're here because we want to honor Christ. Let's go before him as we pray today. Father, we thank you for the time that we have to study, to worship, to sing, to be reminded that you are the God who is concerned for us in our poverty, our suffering, our blasphemy, that we may receive against you the slander and the persecution and the imprisonment. You're the God that gave us a charge to be faithful unto death, and you gave us one very true historical one at Smyrna, this, this pastor, Polycarp. We thank you for your compassion, Lord, that your character is all over this, that you're the victorious one, you're the first and the last, and no matter what we suffer, that you are the one who holds it all together. Lord, we thank you for these pictures in Scripture.
Thank you. These are not just written to some Christians 2,000 years ago. They're written for all time for all Christians. Father, we may not know what lie ahead, but may we take this to heart. It's a greater sin to not embrace the suffering than it is to wallow in our sin. Lord, help us to embrace the suffering. May we have a heart that reminds us of what it is to know Christ. Lord, may we see the true Christian has a greater fear of sin than of suffering. We pray these things in Jesus' name.